Good morning. It's great to be back with you. Had a great um, time in Israel and Jordan. It was a long trip. I was there for about three weeks. We, um, I went about a week before our tour started and did some filming for my uh, website, The Walking the Bible Lands. And um, some people from our class actually joined our tour, which was kind of fun. We had a good, had a good group. And so uh, also going again in March. So if you'd like to be part of that group, we'd love to, love to have you. But anyway, thanks for your prayers. They made all the difference and so many things that could have gone wrong that didn't go wrong. God was very gracious, and I know that the Lord took care of you as well during these, uh, these several weeks. Well, my, my grandmother in Terrell, Texas, used to make, at every holiday, I think particularly um, Christmas, she would make a spread of fried pies that were really good. She had a kitchen island that was about 10 feet long by about three or four feet wide. And that fried pies were all on this island. She'd bake them and then she'd lay them on the island and just kind of let them cool and they just wafted through the house. It was marvelous. And one, one night I ate probably I don't know, three or four of those things. And I was, I don't know, 10, 12 years old at the time. So about 1 o'clock that night, the Grim Reaper came calling. I'd never had heartburn before. So I thought it was hunger pangs. So guess what I did? went downstairs and relieved the kitchen counter of a few more fried pies. Problem solved. Went back to sleep, woke up a couple hours later, it was really hurting worse. I thought, I can't believe how hungry I am. (laughs) Went back downstairs. And uh, anyway, I told that story in the morning and everybody just thought that was so funny, all all the adults. But here's the great irony of that story, I've never forgotten it. That is, I was trying to relieve my pain by eating the very thing that was causing it. That's a lesson that goes far beyond fried pies into so many other things of our life. Because God made us to hunger. Think about that. God created us with a, as a need machine. He created us to hunger. And he created what's necessary to meet that need. The pangs that we feel in life come from God's design. He designed, along with the need, exactly what's needed to meet the need. Some of these pangs are true needs. Some are just godly desires that we have. And some, because of the fall, are just flat-out lusts. But regardless, we know this much for sure, whatever the hunger is, whatever the godly desire is, whatever the lust is that you have in your life, each of it, both the pang and the solution, is is part of God's design. Now, given the choice, we'd want to do what's right to meet those needs, don't we? 
in our, if we've got the mind to sit and be objective about meeting our needs, we want to do it in a way that honors God. The trouble is that most godly solutions require waiting. Whether we're waiting on dinner or waiting on anything else in life that is screaming to us as a great need, and these long gaps of delayed gratification is what makes temptation so tempting, isn't it? Because the fried pies are always downstairs. They're always downstairs. The funny thing happens, though, after we sacrifice our impatience and we, we try to meet the need that God's created in a way that God has not sanctioned, instead of satisfying our God-given desires, the quick fix only intensifies the craving, whether it's relationships or whether it's finances and any other need that you put in your life. It only fuels our desire for more. It never truly satisfies. It's a vicious cycle of desperately seeking to satisfy our pain with the thing that's causing it, the very thing that's causing it. Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, and let's pick up again in this wonderful book that the Apostle Peter has penned. So far in this series on 1 Peter, Peter has given us some great insight and great instruction. And he's written to believers trying to live out their faith in a culture that's hostile to their faith, which was true in the first century and it's also true in the 21st century. We live in a culture that is not conducive to Christianity. Now, the United States does a pretty good job as a country. Uh, there's still so much that, that, our, that our founding fathers have put into our, uh, have baked into our system that allows for the preaching of the gospel and the living of the gospel. So as countries go, the United States is still pretty good, really good. But if you think about it, even the United States and any other country that you would live in because it's a fallen world, is not, does not encourage you to grow as a Christian. It may tolerate it, and sometimes it may flat out resist it. This is who Peter's writing to, so Peter's writing to us. In the very first chapter, we've seen Peter writing to believers trying to live out their faith in a culture hostile to their faith. And he's told them in chapter 1, if you just kind of scan down through it without looking at it, and he's specifics, you'll just remember where we've been. Chapter 1, he's told them that they can laugh in spite of their tears because trials, while necessary, are temporary. He tells them, keep an eternal perspective. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Keep an eternal perspective. Um, and he says to focus on two things that are eternal, God's Word and God's people. God's word is the only means by which you're going to grow as a Christian. Everything else is just a fried pie. Chapter 2, since believers are aliens and strangers in the world, he says our behavior needs to reflect that. And he gives us three specific realms in which our behavior needs to look like Christians and not like the world. In particular, these are three realms 
of excellent behavior in spite of unjust circumstances. So if you find yourself in a situation that's not fair, here's how you respond. Peter says that in the public realm, with behavior toward the government, with the professional realm, whether you're on the job or as a servant, he uses. In chapter 3, in the private realm, with behavior in the home. And as we saw the last time we were together, regardless of the realm in which you live, you need to have an ever-ready message. Because if you live the way Peter says to live in these realms, people are going to ask you, why in the world do you live this way? And you need to always have an ever-ready message for anybody who asks you for the hope that you have within you. And that ever-ready message is the simple message, to, to quote Peter, that Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. This is the gospel, and this is the message that we should always have ready. That takes us all the way through chapter 3. So now as we begin chapter 4, Peter makes a logical connection. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He starts with therefore. And every time you see the word therefore, you need to go back and ask what it's there for. Exactly. He's, con- he's making a connection. Remember all the chapter breaks, all the verse breaks in our Bible are man-made, and they're very good by and large. But it's helpful to remember this is one letter. This is not a bunch of sermons strung together. This is one letter, and it's meant to be understood as a whole. So when he says, therefore, that forces us to go back, which is why we kind of did the review we just did. He says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. What does that mean? Did that mean that he stubbed his toe? Did it mean that he got a splinter in the carpenter shop? That's not the suffering Peter's talking about. To suffer in the flesh in the context, if you look back at verse 18, just a few verses earlier, it says, Christ also died for sins once for all, having been put to death in the flesh. So the suffering in the flesh that he's talking about is the death of Christ. Christ died an unjust death. And Peter says, now, have the same purpose in your mind. Therefore, since Christ died an unjust death, he, since he suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. And then he tells us why. Because he who has suffered in the flesh, or he who has died, has ceased from sin. It's a bit theological, but it's really logical when you think about it. It's the very same thing that Paul taught in Romans chapter 6. It's the same thing Paul taught in Galatians, but it simply means that um, when we have died, if we have died because Christ has died, then sin no longer has authority over us. Um, Frank and Ernest have a cartoon 
in which Frank says, how come opportunity knocks once, but temptation beats at my door every day? Great question. The victorious Christian life, if you think about it, presupposes a battle. The victorious Christian life is not a life of just constant victory and tiptoeing through the tulips. The victorious Christian is a Christian who emerges as a victor from a battle. And it is a battle that we live through every day. If you think about it, there's no victory without conflict. Again, we live in a world, Peter's writing to people who live in a world that struggle. So it's really illusion, an illusion if we think the victorious Christian life is a life without struggle. Victory comes after struggle, and victory comes because of struggle. So struggle is baked in to who we are as, as Christians. You know, there's only one imperative, one command in the verses that we're going to look at today, and it's in the verse that we just read, verse 1, arm yourselves. That's the command. That's the imperative in these six verses, of first six verses of 1 Peter 4. Arm yourself. It means to get ready. It's used of a well-armed foot soldier. There's a couple of different words in the Greek language that refer to a soldier getting ready for battle. One is just sort of getting ready with light armor. The other is you are full-on loaded. And this is the word that Peter uses. Arm yourselves, he says. And notice you are arming yourself with a purpose. In other words, not that you arm yourself with intent as much as you that, that purpose, the purposeful mindset is your armor. You arm yourselves with a purpose, with a mind that has a purpose. So your best weapons for the victorious Christian life are two that Peter are going to list. And here's the first one. Your first of your best weapons is a mindset of purpose. Specifically, to suffer if faithfulness requires suffering. It's a mindset of purpose to suffer if faithfulness requires suffering. And by the way, it will. Faithfulness requires suffering. It was true of Jesus, and it certainly is true of us. You see, Peter lives in the real world too or he did when he was writing this. And he knows that there's no way that our behavior is going to be right if our attitude's not right, if our mindset isn't right. Peter says in verse 1, He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If you're dead, you're not sinning any longer. Peter's talking about identification with Jesus Christ, as Paul wrote in Galatians 2. Remember, incidentally, who was... Peter, Paul talking to when he said this in Galatians 2. He was talking to Peter who had just blown it. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Now just think about that statement for a second. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Put your name in that, in that slot. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it is true of you. You have been crucified with Christ. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. The victorious Christian life is the life of Christ 
lived in and through the life of the Christian. The Holy Spirit he gave within you is so that his life can live through you. This is the good news that Peter is sharing. Paul devoted a whole chapter to this in Romans chapter 6, if you want to really get deep on this issue. But the, but the big theological glorious truth that Peter is sharing, that Paul also shared in Galatians 2 and Romans 6, is simply this, that when Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was raised, you were raised. You were identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, sin no longer has domination over your life. That doesn't mean that you aren't tempted. It doesn't mean that you won't sin. It means that when you do sin, when I sin, it's because we choose to, not because we have to. We have been freed from the, uh, the, the old master, as it were, and we now have a new master, our Lord Jesus. The old master, we've gotten really used to hearing his voice, so that when the old master says jump, we want to jump. There's a story about a... Um, a man who defected from the Soviet Union when it was the Soviet Union, and he was used to jumping when the KGB said jump. Well, once he became an American citizen, the KGB followed him over here, sneak up behind him, said, hi, remember us? Jump. What does he do? He jumps because that's his habit. That's, just what, that's what he remembered. He wasn't un he's not under their authority anymore, but he's so used to doing it that he did it. That's us in sin. Sin has no domination over our lives unless we let it. Because Jesus Christ, when he died, we died. And what did Peter say? He who has died has ceased from sin. The authority over our lives to sin is gone. So when we do it, it's because we choose to do it. That's both a comfort and a terrible conviction because we don't have anybody to blame but ourselves. Peter says our purpose is this so as to live the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Notice the extremes in that verse. The lusts of men or the will of God. Both ends of the spectrum. And God gives us the choice. One is easy with long-term regret. One is hard with long-term benefit. It's a choice. Peter's phrase, the rest of the time in the flesh, the phrase that he uses when he says, the rest of the time in the flesh, you could say the rest of your life. It's the second chance that the Lord gives us every single day. Now this may seem a little, I don't know, morbid, but just do some mental math for a second in your mind. About how much longer do you think you're going to live? Don't holler it out loud. But think about it. You got that number in your mind? Be real, be real generous with yourself. Even a generous estimation. Now plug that in to what Peter is saying. The rest of the time in the flesh, that's the rest of your years, he says, is no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. This is the purpose with which we are to live our lives. Look at verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course 
of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Abominable idolatries. That's quite a list. Sensuality. This is behavior that is completely lacking in moral restraint, usually with the implication of sexual immorality. Lusts is to greatly desire or to have something that is outside of the will of God. That, that goes with any category. Drunkenness speaks for itself. Carousals and drinking parties are actually synonyms. It's, it refers to drinking parties that involve unrestrained indulgence in alcoholic beverages as well as uh, immoral behavior. In fact, I think the NIV may translate this orgies, which is a paraphrase that is unfortunately very accurate. We've all got a past in which we've done things we're not proud of doing. Now, our particular sin may not be listed in this verse, but that doesn't matter. Maybe it is listed. Whether our regrets have made Peter's list or not, we're all there. But notice the wonderful way Peter phrases this sentence. The time already passed is sufficient. Peter says the rest of our lives, those... 20, 30, whatever, years in your generous estimation? That's, that's for the Lord. The time past is already sufficient to live like the Gentiles live. And he gets very specific on those things. And one beautiful thing about the past, I love this, is that it's always the past. It is never now. Every breath we take is the grace of God to start over. The grace of God to just keep going and to persevere. To wake up with the mindset to arm ourselves with the purpose that to suffer if faithfulness requires suffering. This is, this is what we focus on. That's our future and the time past. The time past is sufficient for all that other stuff. Now's the time for faithfulness. That's all internal. Now, Peter says, now let's talk about the external. If you can get this, this mindset right to deal with the internal struggle, now you've also got to face something on the outside. Verse 4. In all this, he says, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Dissipation. That's a word we don't use a lot. It basically refers to self-indulgence, to waste, to a wasteful life. It's talking about indulging in something in excess in the pursuit of pleasure. The original word reflects back that it shows a lack of concern or a thought for the consequences of any action. So it doesn't matter the results. And Peter says they're surprised that we don't run with them. You know, the way that the world lives makes perfect sense to them. We live in a world that is told, has a totally different mindset than we do. You know, we talked about the hunger, the hunger pangs, and the pangs that relate to all the needs in our lives. It, it may seem strange that God would, God would create us as physical beings with appetites, with inclinations, with passions, for hunger, for sex, for work, but then to have specifically at times in our lives or in Scripture to be told to refrain from those things. 
No wonder the world thinks we're nuts. Because God also created us not just as physical beings, but as spiritual beings. And the two parts of our nature are one. And that's so important. Because when we talk, when, when the Lord asks us to refrain from the appetites or inclinations or passions, it's not just denial for the sake of denial, but because we have a spiritual life that goes right along with our physical lives. How essential that we remember. How essential we remember that. That's why, for example, when Joseph in the book of Genesis denied Potiphar's wife, remember that story? She was attracted to Joseph, and Joseph immediately said no. Not because Joseph wasn't a red-blooded, almost said American, red-blood. Well, only the Americans red-blooded. A red-blooded man with normal passions. It's because Joseph understood that his spiritual life worked in concert with his physical life. And for Joseph to deny her was not a denial of his sexuality. In fact, it was an affirmation of it because his spiritual life worked in concert with his physical. And he knew that. And he knew you can't have one without the other. Augustine wrote in his book, The Confessions, he said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. I love that quote because it basically is the theme of what Peter is, is challenging us with. Until we put God at the center of our significance, of our loneliness, of our sexuality, of our purpose, we will never find satisfaction in life, in any realm. This is why we give thanks even before we eat meals, because we recognize God is part of this physical life. We have a spiritual life as well. The Washington Post <laughs> quoted this in a popular men's magazine. I won't tell you the men's magazine, but uh, not that I read it. I, <laughs> but the Washington Post, I don't. I don't read it. I really don't. The Washington Post said this. He said, monogamy is a man's greatest challenge. It takes unshakable commitment, immense emotional maturity, a will of steel in the face of overwhelming temptation. In other words, it ain't going to happen. This is the world's view of monogamy. This is why Peter says, and so they malign you. The world doesn't get it. The world doesn't get our world view, that we see it through spiritual lenses, not just physical. That we are not just physical beings with with hunger pangs, but that we are spiritual beings in the image of God. The world doesn't see it. It can't see it. And frankly, we didn't see it either until God graciously lifted the veil from our eyes to show us the light of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. So they malign you, Peter says. Literally, they blaspheme you, is what the Greek says. They laugh at us. They call us prude. Jesus' baby brother, Jude, had this to say. Jude writes, But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these they are destroyed. Very insightful. 
Peter anticipates this kind of maligning, this kind of response, and he encourages us to take courage in the future. I mentioned there were two weapons for a victorious Christian life that were given here in 1 Peter 4. The first is a mindset of purpose, to suffer if faithfulness requires, and the second is a mindset of perspective. You got a mindset of purpose and a mindset of perspective. The mindset of perspective is simply this, to remember the future. Remember the future. Which sort of sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? How do you remember the future? Because God's revealed it. Only Christians can remember the future because only God can reveal the future. When others malign you because of your Christian faith, keep a mindset of perspective, eternal perspective. Look at what Peter says in verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The old King James says the quick and the dead. There's a future. There is an accounting in the future. You can't just live willy-nilly and expect that everything's going to go okay if you live apart from God's word. They will give account to him who is ready. And notice that tense. He's ready. He's ready now. He is ready. Not he will be ready, might be ready, someday be ready. God is ready. And specifically Jesus Christ is ready to judge the living and the dead. The book of Ecclesiastes concludes with these words after Solomon's lifetime of chasing futility, lifetime of chasing fried pies, realizing that they don't satisfy. Here's how Solomon summed it up. He said, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet... Know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Keep an eternal perspective. Remember the future. Peter says, they can say what they want, but they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I read a great story, true story, about a farmer in Colorado back in the 40s. He uh, planted to have his chicken named Mike. Mike, I'm sorry. Uh, I saw you over there. Where are you, Mike? Anyway, there's a chicken named Mike. And um, there you are. Chicken named Mike. This farmer decides, well, Mike's time is up, and it's time to put him in the cooking pot. Puts Mike on the chopping block and stretches his neck out nice and long and whacks his head off you know, as high as he possibly can because he wants to save as much of the neck as he can. Well, Mike goes down, and you know, chickens with their head cut off is not just a phrase. That really happens. Trouble is, Mike kept running around. In fact, the next day, he was still alive. And this farmer took Mike up to the University of Utah and said, how come my chicken's still alive without a head? And they theorized that, that Mike had enough of a brainstem left to live without his head. 
The farmer started putting feed and water directly into Mike's gullet with an eyedropper, feeding this chicken through his gullet. This is a true story. Of course it is. I read it on the internet. No, it's really a true story. In fact, Mike made it into the Guinness Book of World Records. You can look it up. And, and in all, Mike lived for 18 months until he finally choked to death on a corn kernel in an Arizona motel. <laughs> what I love about that is not just that he choked to death on a corn, corn kernel in an Arizona motel, but that this farmer took Mike with him on vacations. The, men, the, the mental image is the best part. You know, a lot of people are like Mike. Maybe I should say like the chicken. They are. They are. They live their lives with, like a chicken with their head cut off. No vision. No direction. Fatally wounded. Just going through the motions, not know at what point a kernel of corn is going to take them out. I'm trying to be serious. <laughs> it's not working. How do you turn it? Let's try it. Let's try another another story. And this one's true as well. I, I tried to find the the information on the destruction or the implosion of uh, Texas Stadium, but there wasn't a lot of info on that on Texas Stadium, but I did find some info on Seattle's Kingdome. Remember years ago when they imploded Seattle's famed Kingdome Stadium? It was demolished and there was a demolition company that was hired to do the job of imploding this 25,000 ton structure. What I loved about this, what was so remarkable about it, was the extreme measures that they took to make sure that nobody got hurt. Uh, it was pretty amazing. Engineers checked and rechecked the structure, of course. Authorities evacuated several blocks around the kingdom. Safety measures were in place to allow the countdown to stop at any time if there was a need to, to call it off. All the workers were individually accounted for by radio before the explosives were detonated. A large public address system used to announce the final countdown. In short, they took every reasonable measure and more to warn people of the impending danger. And of course, it went off without a hitch. But I read about that, and I think, you know what, that's exactly what the Lord has done. He's told us it's all going to implode one day. In fact, I've set it up to do that. It's all going to come down. But here's the good news. I'm giving you plenty of warning. I've told you through a number of means. The Father has spared no expense to make sure everybody can get out. He warns us through our consciences, through the prophets, through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit, through preachers, through radio broadcasts, through random truths that we hear that we know convict our spirit to the core. And ultimately, He's provided it through His Son, Jesus, who bore the penalty for our sin completely when He died on the cross, and to show that our sin was paid for when He was raised from the dead. 
This is why when Peter says in verse 6, he says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Seems like a hard verse when you think, why in the world has the gospel been preached to those who were dead? Think of it this way, to those who are now dead. Not that the gospel is preached to those who are currently dead, but it, it was preached to them while they are alive, and now they are dead, from Peter's perspective, to those who have already died. And for this reason, he says, the gospel has for this purpose. What purpose? The purpose he just mentioned in verse 5. The people will give account. Because people will give account, the gospel is preached to them so that even, even after they die, even though they are judged in the flesh as men, meaning they die physically, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Because the Lord is ready to judge our sin, Jesus died for our sin, and even people who die with faith in Christ may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Look back at chapter uh, 3, verse 18. Because the same was said true of Christ the last time we were together. It says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, meaning physically died, but made alive in the spirit, meaning spiritually alive. So put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. It's the same thing back in chapter 4, verse 6. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit. The same idea. That even though we die physically, we may live spiritually. This is the great news of the gospel. Peter's point is that God has provided a way of escape. That we don't have to live like the chicken. We don't have to run from the implosion that's coming. Because once we've placed our faith in Christ, it's good news. Not just for after we die, but now that we're living. Why? Because God gives us the example that we cling to in the death of Christ. Remember P Peter said, since Christ has died, it's not just good for salvation after you die, but because Christ has died, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Specifically, he says, a mindset of purpose to suffer if faithfulness requires suffering, and a mindset of perspective to remember the future. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we're not left to ourselves to try to figure out heaven and hell. Thank you that you've given us your word. You've given us insight that goes so far beyond the common sense that that we have as people, and it takes us to grace that goes even beyond the justice that we we would hope that you would not that you would not give us that we deserve, but it takes us to the grace that goes so far beyond what we don't deserve through Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask if there's anyone here today who has come in, perhaps heard the gospel for years 
has heard the good news of Jesus Christ for years. Yet for some reason, it's never clicked. That you might open their heart to see that the good deeds that they are, they are doing to try to earn salvation cannot remove the bad deeds they've done that earn them condemnation. And that instead you would show them the light of the gospel, the good news of forgiveness, that Jesus has paid for all their sins, and you'd give them the grace of faith. For those of us, Lord, who do believe, would you help us to arm ourselves with the mindset that Jesus had? That if faithfulness requires suffering, then suffer we will do. Remind us in those moments when the fried pies offer shortcuts that we would arm ourselves for faithfulness and nothing else. Help us also to keep an eternal perspective because so much of what we see in this world seems so compelling. The arguments from philosophers, the, the, uh, the glitz and glamour of marketing and television and Hollywood, and even the neighbor next door. Help us to keep an eternal perspective and to remember that in the end, the Lord Jesus Christ and those who follow him are the ones who will be standing. Lord, we love you. Thank you for giving us, uh, through Peter, these words that we really need to hear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.